Remember when I told you I grew up in a big-ass city in Pakistan? I spent most of my childhood in Karachi, but that's not where I'm from. Like, that's not my ancestral homeland, you know? Both my parents' families, historically, are from these mountainous regions. Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, Afghanistan, the mountains of Pakistan. Places with snow-capped peaks and icy streams. Over time, their families migrate to what is now known as India. Because before 1947, there was no Pakistan. It was a part of a massive India. And all of India was colonized by the British. I don't want to get all history lecture on you, but after a bunch of rebellions and riots and civil disobedience from the Indians, the British were like, okay, okay, we'll leave you alone. But before we do, we're going to randomly divide you up into two different countries. And we're going to draw these lines based mostly on our random British opinion. One land will be for Muslims and one for Hindus. So then, Indian Muslims like my family had to decide if they were going to stay where they were or if they were going to opt in to moving to the new country for their people, Pakistan. So a couple generations ago, my family moved to what is now known as Pakistan. And then a couple decades ago, my family family, like my immediate family, moved to the United States. When I was 11, I left a place I barely knew to come to Los Angeles, a place that I now call home. But I don't have like a physical connection with LA, you know? I feel like people who are from somewhere always say that they feel like this intense pull to the land itself. Like it's a part of them and they're a part of it. I've never felt a physical connection to any land until right now. Oh my gosh. This moment. <laughs> when I find myself in Glacier National Park. So beautiful. This is Hello Nature from REI Co-op Studios, brought to you by Subaru. I'm your host, Misha Youssef. This campsite rules. This is beautiful. We're like right by a river. This is the most beautiful campsite I've ever camped at. This is better than Cherry Valley, better than our hip camp, right? Would you agree? Okay, I'm going to back in. Jonathan and I set up camp at the Big Creek Campground inside Glacier National Park. It didn't look as like actual camping. It's the end of May. It snowed just a few days ago, so it's still pretty cold, around 40-ish degrees. But there's these little light pink and lilac flowers that are peeking out from the ground. And the greenish-blue stream next to our campsite is flowing with excitement. Almost like it's ready for hot girl summer. Damn, dude. What a vibe. What a vibe! There are these thin, tall trees. They kind of look like pines. And there are deer walking by occasionally. Scared, but also kind of curious. Wow. Not gonna lie, this park literally looks like Pakistan. Snow-capped mountains, icy streams. I am not gonna get over this. 
The one thing that makes this park not like Pakistan is that I'm the only Pakistani person here, as far as I can tell. This is my fourth park, and I haven't actually seen any Pakistani rangers on this trip. Like, I can literally count on one hand the rangers of color I've seen this whole time. And it makes me want to know why. It was definitely after I graduated from college. I was just hanging out with, like, three other friends, and we were all just sitting and chatting, like, woo, we just graduated from college, like, we're unemployed. And I remember we were all thinking, like, well, we don't have money to, like, do these big celebratory trips to Europe and, I don't know, across the state. And one of my friends suggested, why not go to, like, Yosemite National Park? Vivian Wang and her friends end up taking a road trip to Yosemite. This is Vivian's first ever time camping. So she has no idea what she's doing. And I remember like when we went on like our first hike, I was sweating so much. My back was hurting because, you know, didn't have like supportive straps. And like my Nikes, they were fit just right. But, you know, that's not really good because when you go on your way down, your toes just jam the front of your your shoe. And so I remember my toes like hurting. And it's like so funny because I feel like at that moment, I could have been like, why do people like this? But for some reason, I was like, I love this. This trip. Her first time in Yosemite, she can't shake it. So in her mid-20s, Vivian's working at a consulting company. She's doing it for the money. But what she really wants to do is be a park ranger and hang out in places like Yosemite. And I was like, I remember thinking like, I don't know. Like, these positions are so highly coveted. Like, you know, like everyone wants to work for the National Park Service. Like hundreds of people apply like each year. And I remember thinking like, why would, like, why would they choose me? She sees this specific job online. It's for a Mandarin-speaking ranger. Vivian's like, I mean, I can speak Mandarin. But do I really have a shot? And her friend's like, Vivian, how many Mandarin-speaking people are going to apply for this job? Just do it. So Vivian listens to her friend, sends in her application, and then she waits. She knows that if she gets this job, she's going to have to take a pay cut. Like, a big pay cut. She has student loans like me. She has a car loan, normal people bills to pay, and a job as a park ranger. This job, specifically, is seasonal. But then, she gets a response from the park service, and she gets the job. Congratulations, Vivian, you are now a park ranger. And not just any job, a job as a park ranger in freaking Yellowstone, one of the biggest, most famous national parks of all time. Vivian's so excited. She gets her uniform in the mail and she can't wait to put it on. And I remember like when I put on like the hat, I was like, ooh, I felt this aura like on me. And I was just like, yes, like I am a park ranger. The uniform fills her with a sense of purpose and pride. She walks through Yellowstone like she was meant to be in the place. I remember like one or two visitors like screamed once and I was like, oh gosh, are they okay? And like running towards me and I was like, oh my God, like what is happening? And them being like, wow, like I've never seen like an Asian ranger before. Like this is so exciting. Like, can I take a picture with you? Like, this is super cool. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, like, yeah. These visitors love her. But then Vivian starts to notice how her colleagues talk about her. 
to be very hyper aware of my actions and my words because if I did anything wrong, literally all they had to say was like, oh yeah, I was talking to like the Asian ranger. I was the only one, like they would know exactly like who they were like talking about. I did have like an incident with one of my coworkers where like, not sure if they were aware of it, but you know, they mocked my language, you know, in Mandarin. And when I brought it up to the supervisor, they pretty much dismissed it. And looking back on it, like, uh, like I wish I pushed it like more, but that's like an incident where I was just like, oh man, like that was just not very good. And I don't feel very good about that. And then when it comes to like the visitors. She means white visitors. They asked me, you know, where I'm from and just kept pushing it when they weren't satisfied with, you know, when I would say California. (laughs) Sometimes the white visitors would come directly to me and be like, can you tell them? Asian visitors. To like, you know, not do this and that. And I'm like, they're not doing anything. They're just standing around in the parking lot. And I'm just like, I don't know what you want me to do. (laughs) We're all trying to see this like one view, you know, like maybe come at a time where it's not that crowded, you know? And then they would just, yeah, I mean, it was just really interesting when they would, yeah, come up to me and like ask me that or like, oh, like, do you speak their language? And I was like, I do, but they're literally not doing anything. They're just being a visitor just like you too. So you might feel like, Vivian, this sucks. These aren't really even microaggressions. They're like aggression aggressions. You must hate your job. I mean, Vivian didn't love these moments but she still feels a sense of purpose. I felt proud to represent the National Park Service because I love the national parks and the outdoors. But when it comes to being an American... I think because of my identity, like, yeah, I'm like an Asian American, but I feel like I identify more with, like, the Asian part of that. And I think I'm not, like, treated in a way that, like quote-unquote Americans should be treated. Like, I've had to deal with discrimination and, like, racism. When the season ends, Vivian's like, I still have student loans to pay, and I'm not making a dent on this salary. Plus, because the job's seasonal, she would literally have to find another job to apply for in the park service. Why make these positions seasonal? Like, it's such a... I don't know. I, I, it just is a very unfortunate that you kind of have to like earn your way there. Like you got to do like this much, this many like hours, this many like seasonal um, positions to maybe, and it's not even guaranteed, like maybe like gain the status of like permanent and then you would have to apply for jobs. So she decides not to. Like I've known people like in the, like I've met people in the park service that has worked there for like, I don't know, 20 plus years and they're still seasonal because they're not able to find like permanent job, but somehow they're able to still make it work for them, which is good for them. But, you know, not everyone is able to do that. I think there just needs to be a lot more like partnership, work within like the organizations and the financial aspect, transportation, providing a welcoming space. Because I'm sure there are people, you know, um, folks of color that have gone out to these places and have was met with, like, very, like, racist, harmful, like, had these, like, racist, harmful experiences. And they may never want to go back. And, you know, and I think 
like we in general as a society just have to make it like more welcoming, more of a safe place for them to like be there. Talking to Vivian, hearing about how hard it is to make it into the park service, it deflates me a little. If most of these jobs are seasonal, how can someone like me, with $200,000 of student debt, ever afford to take a job like this? If other rangers don't know how to be around someone like me, to make their colleagues of color feel safe, why would anyone like me want to stick around in a job like that? If the visitors treat visitors of color like they're different, like they don't belong in these spaces, how could we ever belong as rangers? And if I don't feel like I belong, if Vivian doesn't feel like she belongs, what must it feel like for the people who are indigenous to this area? I had the beauty and the the luck of growing up in a world of incredible space. And then you look up, And you see that sky, a sky that is limitless. And at night, it's like, think of diamonds. Take a handful of diamonds and just reach down and grab a handful in your hand and and throw it on blue velvet. My name is Tom Rogers. Um, I am uh, an enrolled Blackfeet tribal member from the Blackfeet Nation in Montana. Um, There's no building taller than maybe 15 stories in the entire state. So you get, you get off a plane and you can see from horizon to horizon. Sometimes even the barbed wire singing in the air as the wind travels across it. And you have these fabulous waves of grain in June and May that are green and they almost look like, like the creator's hand moving across the face of the green grass. And they're like waves. So you take the the sea of grass of green as it moves like a wave would across the ocean. And then look up and see that beautiful diamonds and velvet. That's Montana. So even though I feel this pull to Montana, it's not like actually my homeland. It feels like the northern areas of Pakistan, but this area, it's the land of the Blackfeet, Salish, Ponderay, and Kootenai tribes. It's Tom's ancestral homeland. In the 1960s, Tom grew up in Glasgow, Montana, population 3,322 today. The title of the article when it was profiled in the Washington Post was um, captioned as the middle of nowhere. So when I talk to you, I can truly say to you, I am from the middle of nowhere. During the year, he goes to school and works at a gas station. But in the summer, he stays with his grandparents on the Blackfeet Reservation near Glacier National Park. His grandfather takes him horseback riding. The Native Americans, my Native brothers and sisters of Blackfeet, were so connected to the land. And almost every day, Tom catches trout from the brook right outside the house and eats it with his breakfast. So it is of two minds that I come to this issue because it's like, Oh my God, this is so beautiful. And at the same time, this is so sad. Blackfeet history is so painful to think about in some ways. You might remember David Troyer from the first episode. He's a writer and a member of the Ojibwe. Troyer writes in his book, In 1837, 
a packet operated by the American Fur Company in the Blackfeet homeland, knowingly sent a smaller boat with traders who had smallpox deep into Blackfeet country. Between 10 and 15,000 Blackfeet died of the disease, thereby ending their dominance. Their population at one point, you know, in the early 19th century was 20 to 30,000 maybe, maybe more. And by 1900, I think there were around 1,000 Blackfeet left. The Blackfeet were tiny, impoverished, politically disenfranchised. And on top of that, the Americans purposely kill their buffalo by the thousands. The settlers want to starve the native tribes. Their primary food source was gone and was being actively disappeared by buffalo hunters paid by the United States government and private industry as well. And you know, the Blackfeet don't just rely on the buffalo for food. They rely on them for warmth in the winters and for all kinds of tools. And they basically made use of the fact that the Blackfeet were literally starving to death um, in great numbers every winter. They used that vulnerability to get them to agree to cede the land that became Glacier in exchange for whatever provisions would get them through a winter or two. So in the Treaty of 1895, the Blackfeet sell 800,000 acres of land to the U.S. government for only $1.5 million. The median house in Bozeman, Montana today costs almost a million dollars and is less than a single acre of land. At this point, the Blackfeet barely have any land, their population has been decimated, and they're almost out of Buffalo. And here comes President Grover Cleveland. And he's like, I'm going to help the natives. I'm going to create something called the Dawes Act. The act takes the land that belongs to natives from a land trust managed by the government and gives that land back to the indigenous people. Seems like a great idea. But... Instead of giving it back to tribal leadership as a whole, he gives it back to individual members of the tribe. Remember Partition? How the British randomly decided they were going to split India up before leaving? Anyway, these members of native tribes at this time are pretty poor. So a lot of them do what anyone in their position would do. They decide to sell their land for money. In terms of native land loss, the Dawes Act is the most damaging piece of legislation ever passed in Congress. It's a combination of the Treaty of 1895 and the Dawes Act that strips the Blackfeet of most of their land. And that land becomes Glacier National Park in 1910. Treaties are made. They're dishonored. We were promised the ability to hunt on our lands. No. We were promised the ability to fish. No. We were promised to do our ceremonies. No. This is no longer your land in any way. Even to this day, we've had to fight to have our story told throughout the park. One of the people trying to tell that story in Glacier National Park is Derek DeRogier. I am the general manager for Sun Tours. Uh, I've worked for Sun Tours for, I think this has gone on five or six years. Derek's dad is Blackfeet. So, you know, most people would be like, Derek's ethnically Blackfeet. 
He's grown up on the reservation. He's a huge part of the Blackfeet tribal community as a descendant. But he's not technically an enrolled member of the tribe. In the 1930s, the U.S. government promoted something called blood quantum in tribes like the Blackfeet. Blood quantum is a way to use the idea of race as the basis for citizenship in a federally recognized tribe. It was started by various people who work in the government as a way to finally divest this country of what it considered its quote-unquote Indian problem. The idea was, if you set a blood quantum, a threshold, below which you'd no longer count legally as a native. So you might culturally be one, you might identify as one, but you're legally not one. You don't receive benefits. You can't uh, run for office. You don't have treaty rights. And the idea was, over time, through intermarriage, Indians as a legal category would no longer exist. So in the Blackfeet tribe, if you're quarter Blackfeet, you're an enrolled member. But if you're less than that, then you're a descendant member like Derek. So it's an arbitrary distinction of uh, qualification of being a Blackfeet member. Even though he's not legally a member of the Blackfeet, he lives on the reservation outside the east entrance to the park. We're staying on the west side, so we drive over to meet him at his house. Driving over to meet Derek, it makes sense to me why Montana is called Big Sky Country. The way you can get lost in a night sky, I am lost in the blue sky of Montana. There's nothing to block it, and there's no end to it. And the sun is shining on us through little pockets in the clouds. Dense, white clouds. They almost look cartoonish. This whole area of the mountains that that we see from the plains uh, going up into Canada is what the Blackfeet call the backbone of the world. And the backbone of the world, that's, you know, represents uh, a spine along the landscape because as a, as a tribal people here that has existed on the plains and, and lived off of the buffalo or bison, uh, we could, you can see it on a clear day for uh, 100 miles away or more. This is the place where the Blackfeet tribe began a long time ago you can still find traces of their ancestors inside the valleys. Traditional campsites are places where the Blackfeet would go to camp, uh, usually, you know, into the spring in and into the summer. So we would travel into the mountains as the snow would melt and we would camp around the lakes once we were able to. Teenagers would seek guidance on becoming an adult. Others would pray for sick family members or just express gratitude for the good things they had. They would have sweat lodges and healing ceremonies. They would go on vision quests, fasting for days on top of a mountain or in the middle of a lake. We talk about it now as being an incredible area, right? Going into the mountains and it's so pretty and beautiful and, and, and the Blackfeet thought the same thing. And so, you know, that's part of what uh, informed our, the power of our ceremonies as we would go into the mountains and the, you know, not just the beauty, but the power that the mountains hold uh, when you're in, in the valleys. When we talk about our history uh, of Glacier National Park, it plays right into our history as a tour company as well. So in the early 1900s, 
right after Glacier Park becomes official. They actually promoted what, I forget what it's called now, like an Indian village where they would pay tribal members who were going through a very hard time in the early part of the 20th century, pay them a pittance to set up teepees and to live and to act and dress as they had when the park was stolen from them. That's the deep irony. It's like the park is creating this whole fake performance for people to see what Native life was like. A way of life that supposedly doesn't exist anymore. So you had like a museum exhibit essentially of an Indian village with Blackfeet people, I don't know, making baskets or tanning hides or having a mock powwow or, you know, living in teepees and sitting around in buckskin and being quote unquote real Indians. Whereas, you know, 20, 30 years before that, um, that's the very thing they were penalized for. The stories that America tells about Native people are stories that are convenient for America. And by that, I mean, you know, the way that most Americans understand us facilitate the settler state. And it's a really convenient story for this country because, you know, it's it's easier to feel like you're living out your democratic and constitutional ideals if you're not in the constant process of stealing someone else's stuff. And the best way to tell yourself that you're not stealing someone else's stuff is to tell yourself that those people are in fact gone. The Parks wanted the relationship they had with Indigenous people to seem like a romantic past, not an occupation of land. So Ed DeRosier, uh, my dad, he was a tribal member that saw the, uh, the potential of owning a, or doing a tribal tour company in this area, in the National Park, being able to um, you know, utilize some of our uh, knowledge uh, and, and sharing what it means to be Blackfeet with all the visitors that we have as a tour business. It's the early 1990s. Ed is in his late 30s. He's grown up in Browning on the reservation. He works for the State Highway Department. And he recognizes that there are almost no Native park rangers and, like, no Native businesses operating in the park. He, he wanted to start this kind of on the side. He reached out to the National Park and he approached them and said, hey, I want to start a tour company. I'm a tribal member. I want to share uh, our Blackfeet culture with, with tours. And, and they had the red buses already established. They had been there since the 30s. These red buses, they led historical tours of the park. A private company owned them, and they were telling the non-Native history of Glacier National Park and the areas around it. And they denied him. They basically said, we, we have a tour company here. Um, we would have to grant you a, a permit and be, and you, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they didn't, they didn't want to do that. And so they said no, essentially. And he was like, well, well, well I just kind of want to do it anyway. <laughs> so he got a van. The van is white, like the size of a school bus. It's 24 people. And he started doing tours. He gets licensed from the state and the Blackfeet tribe. He straight up hustles. He's an entrepreneur. He tells everyone he meets about it. And then he heads to town. He would go and park uh, the van at the train station. 
and he got like a little logo and 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 so he would he just said you know i we we do tours in the park we can we can take you up there like it'll be however much money he was charging at the time probably just cash <laughs> and and jump jump on the van and we'll take you for a tour and he starts actually taking the van into the park and doing the tours and the rangers are like um you're not a legit vendor they gave him a warning uh, you know they said you know you you don't have a uh, you don't have a right to be here think about how messed up that is the park is telling this native man whose ancestors have lived in this area for literal thousands of years that he has no right to be here, that he has no right to tell people about the indigenous history of the land, that he has no right to make money off of that. Except they don't say it like that. You don't have a license, you're not a concessioner, you're not a business, um, we, we can't allow you to do this. But Ed wasn't asking for their permission. He lays low for a minute and then starts back up again. He loads up his van with tourists, he drives into Glacier. And they pulled him over, they gave him some tickets, they sent, you know, some fines to his house, and eventually they said, you know, if we see you up here again, you know, we're, we're gonna arrest you, we're gonna throw you in jail. The friends who've been doing the tours with Ed are like, we're out, we are not about to get arrested over this. But Ed's like, I'm not giving up that easy. He goes to Blackfoot leadership and tells them the problem. And the tribal leadership is like, okay, we're going to fight this thing. They ended up having a huge protest and they had a bunch of tribal members. They had signs uh, outside of the front entrance that, you know, that said Glacier National Park is racist. A local newspaper wrote that signs read, boycott Glacier Lodges, united we stand, more jobs for Indians. And then there was another protest, a bigger one. So they had, they had uh, rangers, they had law enforcement out there guarding the Many Glacier Lodge. They had automatic weapons, and they were, had all these tribal members up on top of the hill with signs. And you know, these protests make headlines. Ed, being the badass he is, is like, yes, I've got momentum. And the only way to keep that momentum going, keep fighting. So he does, and he gets all the way to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the court right before the Supreme Court. And the Park Service and the tribe are both like, okay, okay, we don't want to go to the Supreme Court. That, my friends, is how Sun Tours came to be. The non-hustle, legal business that takes people on native-led tours throughout Glacier National Park. Even today, almost 30 years later, it is one of the only native tour companies operating in a national park in the whole country. So it's very important to look back over the last 120, 130 years and notice the ways in which we've been surviving. And not just surviving, but growing and achieving and accomplishing things. If we don't notice that, we're screwed because there's nothing in front of us. If our story is a descending line, how are we going to ascend? 
it can set a precedent, right? Whether you're talking about recognizing treaty rights or sovereignty or federally recognizing a tribe or all of those types of things. So those types of of cases are, are a big deal, especially if they go in favor of the tribe. We've been driving with Derek for over an hour. We took one of the Sun Tour buses and drove in from the east entrance of the park. So I'm, I'm really proud and thankful to be, to be a part of that. We've driven all the way to the top of a mountain. So beautiful. So, uh, yeah, welcome to the Two Medicine Valley. Two Medicine is like quintessential Montana. Like it captures the entire beauty of the area. Giant, pointy mountains surrounding bright blue lakes. Snow everywhere. It literally takes my breath away. Somehow, it has a 4.5 on TripAdvisor. There's this J.B. Priestley quote that I love where he's talking about the Grand Canyon. And he says, I've heard rumors of visitors who were disappointed. The same people will be disappointed at the Day of Judgment. In other words, haters going to hate. There's significance of like every place name, every every peak, every valley, every lake, um, and it just depends on how far you want to go back and, and what stories have been told and passed down. And, you know, for us, the Blackfeet, we, we didn't, as many other tribes, didn't have a, a written language, and it was, and it, our histories were told orally and passed down, and, and that's where a lot of our, our knowledge comes from, is, you know, from our grandparents and their grandparents and, and passed down. And, and that's what's so tough about tribes being displaced from territories is, the land like you know literally provides a space of remembrance for history and when you're cut off from that you lose that i have never ever set foot in the places that i'm indigenous to i haven't even been back to pakistan in 13 years i feel like a flower that was cut off from her tree from her roots i'm living in water still alive but misplaced So I know what it's like to be cut off from your ancestral land. I know what it's like for that land to have been ravaged by war and corruption, looted and left in poverty. Sometimes it feels like we live in a globalized post-colonial world. Like almost every inch of land on Earth was once colonized, destroyed. That almost every culture was torn apart. That almost no one is connected to their roots anymore. And like, it doesn't even matter. We must just move forward because it's too late or something. But I think it does matter. It matters to me. I think it matters because of the feeling I have in Glacier, in Montana. The feeling of just being in a place that's like my ancestral homeland. The faint hint of belonging. A feeling so powerful, it creates an even more intense longing. A longing to connect, to know my history, to know my culture, to know myself, to let my feet touch the earth that created me. If this feeling is so visceral, so intense for me standing in Montana, more than 7,000 miles from Pakistan, what would it feel like for me to be connected to my roots, to be connected to my land, to my traditions and stories? Here's the thing. My homeland was colonized, but not permanently. If I wanted to, I can go home. I can live there. I can work and make money there. No one is going to stop me. I mean, here, 
the colonizers never left. They settled permanently. And despite that, despite the fact that the American government has broken every single treaty with the people who are indigenous to this land, Native people are still fighting. Ed DeRosier, his son Derek, so many others refuse to let their culture be trapped inside an exhibit. You know, for me and my family, as immigrants, becoming American was a privilege. Being American allows us to own a dream, a collective dream. It comes with perks and rights and freedoms, like coming to these parks. But coming to these parks, I'm finally realizing what it means for me as an immigrant to buy into that dream. My family may have come here for a better future, but we are coming to stolen land. We may not be coming with the intention to colonize, but we too are settlers. Hello Nature from REI Co-op Studios is brought to you by Subaru. It's produced by Dustlight Productions. I'm your host and executive producer, Misha Youssef. Our executive editor is Arwen Nix. Jonathan Shiflett is the senior producer. Elizabeth Nakano is the producer. Francesca Diaz is assistant producer. Ariana Garbly provided additional production help. This episode was written by me, Ariana Garbly, and Arwen Nix. It was sound designed by me with help from Francesca Diaz. Valentino Rivera is the senior engineer. Carly Bond is the composer. Elizabeth Goodspeed is our art director and designer and did our artwork for the series. The illustrations on the artwork are by Joshua Ariza. Special thanks to Rachel Garcia, our development and operations coordinator at Dustlight, and apprentice Matthew Lai. From REI Co-op Studios, executive producers are Chelsea Davis, Joe Crosby, and Paolo Matola. Kirsa Berg is the podcast production intern. 